welcome to a new episode of In Check with Fintech, organized by PCN. My name is Rogier, and um, with me on the show today is Olly Betts, who's the co-founder and CEO of OpenWorks. Um, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening around OpenWorks. Uh, maybe you guys have seen that as well, that um, they've, uh, they've announced a partnership with Tink. Um, they just got entered into Visa's Fintech Connect program, all stuff that we'll be talking about today um as well as about um yeah kind of the topic of the podcast today which is how open banking can work to improve people's everyday lives um but first ollie welcome to the show hi thanks for having me looking forward to it likewise um yeah for the listeners would you mind maybe giving a bit of an introduction on the persona ollie oh i can try my best okay. <laughs> yeah sure um so yeah i i i'm ollie i i live with um my beautiful wife two cats and a dog in Nottingham, uh, England, which has been great during lockdown because it's out in the countryside. And so we get some nice fresh air for those daily exercises and things. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been in fintech for about 15 years now. I, actually, I'm an engineer by qualification. Um, my dream is still to be a car designer. But whilst I'm waiting for someone to come and hire me to do that, I build fintech businesses. So um, my first startup was back in the early 2000s with a company called uh, TDX Group, which was an alternative uh, credit bureau that we sold to Equifax in 2014. And then I started OpenWorks in 2015, um, very focused around how we could use uh, sort of at the time emerging um, real-time transactional data to better understand people and, and to build more personalized products um, for people. Uh, and as you mentioned, Jay, we've been building that business up. Um, we recently exited part of the business through a partnership with Tink, which is our, our open data aggregation platform. So the rails, um, but we use that platform or use those rails to launch um, consumer uh, products and services that, that help consumers better understand what they can afford um, uh, and better navigate financial services. So yeah, that's a, I guess that's a bit about me and a bit about sort of the, the starts of OpenWorks. Great, great. Well, well, we'll definitely touch on your, your partnership with Tink. I think that's very interesting, especially in times like these. But maybe more the story around OpenWorks. You started, like I said, almost six years ago. How did that come about? What's the story been over the last six years? And maybe to start off kind of, yeah, where did the idea come from? Yeah, um, so certainly kind of in the previous fintechs I'd been a part of, um, we'd, um, ultimately, I've always been quite focused on, I guess, what I describe as B to B to C, so um, providing technology into other businesses that was then helping consumers. But a lot of the the, the kind of um, proposition was all, always use better data to understand people. And if you can understand people better, specifically kind of financial data about um, their situation, then you can deliver a more personalized a product, whether that's a loan product or whether that's helping someone repay a loan product or whatever it might be. Um, and the, the businesses I'd worked in before starting my own business were um, used a lot of information uh, from people's credit files. So information about people's propensity to, to meet and make payments um, and using that information to, to fine tune and um, deliver quite tailored uh, strategies to contact those consumers and, and deliver the right product to them. Um, so really OpenWorks came out of wanting to go to the next stage with, with that in terms of the uh, the granularity or detail of data that you can use to understand consumers. And at the time, um, that was my like high level hypothesis. I want to start a business that uses 
like the the most cutting edge kind of financial data um, to build products. And just around the same time, um, obviously, transactional data has been used for quite a long time in certain countries, um, uh, in the US and in some of uh, Scandinavia. Uh, but in, in kind of the UK, we were still very focused on purely credit file data. But there was a movement sort of starting to happen around open banking, mainly because of the introduction of PSD2 at the European level, kind of the UK government. As I started the business, we're starting to look at, right, well, what, what does this mean for the UK? Um, and pretty quickly after starting the business, sort of the foundations for the regulations around open banking became um, real. And so essentially OpenWorks came out of, well, this, this looks interesting. You know, imagine being able to um, uh, enable a consumer or a small business to kind of share their transactional information. This fills a lot of gaps in knowledge about consumers that can help you deliver better credit products and help people understand their money a lot better. So it was effectively started out of, we think this could be very interesting data. We want to be able to use it. Let's build some, let's build the technology and let's build the connectivity to the bank APIs to get hold of this stuff. And it was almost in 2015, it was a let's do that and then we'll figure out what we're going to use it for later, which is sort of how the stories panned out. What was it like? And if, yeah, it sounds very simple. You want to get access to financial data and build products around that. Was it that simple six years ago or how easy was it to say, okay, we're going to build technology around it and the accessibility of, of two financial data is, um, is very easy? It's a great question. Yeah, I think um, people, companies have made it look easy. Um, and it's one of those stories where it's probably a lot easier now than it was at the start. I think it's kind of... It, when the when the first banks opened up their APIs in the UK, um, I think if you you looked at it technically, it wasn't that complicated. It was for good reasons, following fairly well established security models, um, use of kind of author authorization or authentication tokens. Um, that that bit wasn't too complicated. I think the complexity came in around how you build for scale from day one. So we were very conscious that. As soon as you start to use more granular, more high velocity, as we would call it, but sort of real-time information, you're dealing with more information, more data at more scale. So being ready to scale from day one was a big challenge. And then one of the big challenges we found actually was the whilst um, banks in the UK were implementing to a standard, which has been massively helpful, that standard was more around um, governance, use of yeah, the, the type of authentication model being used um, and and what uh, underlying uh, financial information would be made available by the banks. It didn't go into the level of detail of how they present that data. So if you take a, a, a Barclays Open Banking API and put it next to a Santander Open Banking API and call some data back from it, um, you the way that um, those two banks calculate running balance, the way they present transactions is very different. So I guess the technical challenge was really how do you make this a standardized service that can be consumed and, and ultimately make it easy for other fintechs uh, and other businesses to uh, create great products off the back of. And so that that's where the sort of complexity came in. And then uh, just the number of banks you need to, to connect the potential instability of the bank's own APIs. So how you manage errors gracefully and how you um, monitor those APIs. And ultimately, because our first proposition at OpenWorks was, 
you know, just plug into our one API, we'll give you access to all the banks. You will remove you from all the noise and you'll just get standard, uh, brilliantly deep, brilliantly insightful financial information first time, every time. Um, so I guess it was one of those sort of complexity in the, in the scaling and the, um, the performance of the platform. Has that become easier, would you say? That, I mean, has it become less complex over the years or has the fact that you're now trying to connect um, to other banks or to more banks, uh, building more products, uh, maybe the regulation that has come into play, maybe willingness of banks to innovate, has that made it more complex to build solutions around, um, around data, such as you were doing? Um, I think it's become a little, a little easier. Um, I do think that the, the sort of... Um, if you just take the UK to start with, then the, the uh, initial group of the large sort of as we call the high street banks who were mandated to move first on open banking, that was fairly difficult. Um, a combination of it was being mandated rather than voluntary, which has its own kind of inertia, I guess, around, around it and willingness for the banks to be super helpful probably wasn't there in day one. Plus, in the defense of the banks, um, they have very complicated um uh, entrenched legacy uh, systems, core banking infrastructure, which these APIs uh, needed to surface data that sat within those those systems that w weren't designed to do that. So um, it's become easier, I think, as banks, uh, the, the initial first banks to make APIs available kind of went through some of the teething problems. Um, and that's been seen, I think, in other geographies outside of the UK. I think the thing that doesn't change is it's, um, you know, that what we've not quite got to in terms of level of maturity in the market is lots and lots of um, value being generated for the banks. So they're opening up their APIs to enable their customers to access services from other providers. But what do the banks get out of it? And I think that's still not been proven. So really the momentum still been through regulatory mandate rather than the banks pulling the pace of change and really wanting it to work. I think if you look at globally, there's some geographies where actually in pockets, banks are really driving that, that innovation. Goldman Sachs in the US have been really seem to have invested a lot of time and effort on trying to be API first and embrace third parties innovating on top of their banking platform as a kind of differentiator for the future. Um, I think until you see sort of more and more banks approach, uh, sort of embrace that approach, it's still it's still hard yards if you look at um, one of the rationale for partnering with Tink was those guys are equipped with um, a huge team and huge level investment to do those hard yards, you know, across the globe. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the fintech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team, get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Why is that though? Why is it that um, let's say U.S. banks or in in the U.K. or in Europe, um, this sort of development is more driven by regulation, whereas in the in the U.S. it's 
it's banks first. Is there an, a reason, specific um, reason for that you can point towards? Yeah, I, I, um, I can't say I'm an expert on the US market. I think there's a level of the regulation across the piece is probably a little bit more fragmented. So there was all, even in the UK, to, if we abstract it from open banking and say, I want to get hold of transaction information, which is kind of what you asked earlier, kind of how easy that is. There's two sort of in 2015, 16, there were two ways to do it. They sort of get prepared for open banking. The banks will open up their APIs and plug into that. Or there was um, effectively something kind of people termed direct access or at the time was called screen scraping, which is look to effectively reverse engineer APIs that the banks already have in place between their core banking uh, stack and their exter own external um, you know, mobile banking apps, as an example, you could reverse engineer and basically piggyback on that API to get a hold of the data you needed. I think um, in the US, what you can see is that is much more prevalent. You know, Plaid, the biggest uh, kind of um, transactional banking aggregator um, re based on a few metrics, but let's start with the valuation that Visa have put on them, is, um, you know, they've largely reverse engineered. They're now um, complementing and supplementing that with kind of approved um, APIs from the banks. But I guess I think the regulation in the US enabled that because it's so suitably fragmented that you could do that. What was happening in the UK was, you know, screen scraping really wasn't allowed. And, you know, as a consumer, you were breaching the covenants of your terms and conditions with your bank if you used a, uh, a different interface through a third party. Um, so there were the blockers in place to protect consumers in the UK, which probably there haven't been in the US. So the scale has been able to build built by the likes of Plaid with that clever reverse engineering and then what they've been able to do is demonstrate commercial gain to the banks so banks being able to and they've not done that necessarily directly but banks being able to offer their customers access to Robinhood for for you know very quick investment um you know and, and the ability to invest in stocks and shares as a bolt onto their banking service is kind of been enabled by Plaid's rails and then the banks look at it and going well that's great we've acquired lots more customers and maybe we can do a partnership with Robinhood to monetize them. So I think um, it's kind of a combination of what regulation's trying to achieve and the kind of commercial model. And in the UK, I don't think the banks have been creative enough about partnering with fintechs or looking at different ways to monetize customers. And so it's still seen, you know, providing access to this data is still seen as a, a kind of loss making exercise and therefore it becomes something to do with regulation, something rather than something to do with opportunity. And a commercial incentive is not big enough, basically. Yeah, they've not found that that extra injection to the bottom line that says we should really be investing behind that. Um, now, there's a few exceptions. Uh, if you look at the sort of neo or challenger banks in the UK, you know, Starling and Monzo stood up effectively open banking APIs, but outside of the, the UK standard, but the same principle, which is sort of enabling their customers to, to share the data that sits in their Monzo or Starling account with a third party um, very, very early. And um, that's probably something to do with the way they think about the monetization. I mean, a lot to play out with those challenger banks, but still a lot of the um, business model or business plan is still wrapped around some kind of marketplace. I acquire customers, I provide them with core banking services, and then I, I'm able to cross-sell them other products because I know what they like and I have a good understanding of their finances. So yeah, I, I think it's sort of um, 
a piece around what your business model is and your your kind of um, as a bank kind of your willingness to explore revenue streams outside of payments and core banking. Interesting. Hey, you. So back to kind of the the, the partnership um, or the M and A with with Tink. Um, how did that come about? You said that Tink you kind of use them because they have, of course, way more manpower in order to maybe help you guys grow internationally was that the main driver for uh, this partnership or were there other things as well yeah i guess we we were really looking for wanting to expand the the um the applications or use cases that we built on top of our rails so we've got a few of those that that we built out that were very um successful and gaining a lot of traction with our clients so we have a um a service we call tully which provides um, free debt advice to consumers who are financially struggling um, and we use open banking to enable us to establish a customer's financial position and help them with tailored advice. We have a service that delivers um, uh, an automated route to completed income and expenditure assessment, which is a vital step in most lending processes, but also um, in any processes to help a consumer with financial support, which we've seen be really um, important during COVID. So really for us, it was kind of, how do we expand internationally these these great applications we've built? And we had the choice really, we either, because they're so intrinsically linked to to open banking data and payments, it was, do we do we build, you know, to take those applications to new markets, we, we would need a point of connection to the banks. And we either had to choose to build those ourselves in countries or find someone else. So it started there as a, um, who's got, a great as i would call it kind of aggregation platform within europe and beyond that we could plug into and from that conversation when we were talking to um to tink it became very clear they had a really really uh, great platform with great bank coverage um, but also became clear that um we'd got more a lot more coverage in the uk market than they had and really as a business our core focus and where we really add value is on top of the rails. So how do we use this great transactional data to build products that are better for consumers? Um, and so really we sort of saw this aggregation platform as an enabler rather than a core kind of piece of IP for us or a revenue line for us. And so that's where um, uh, it became kind of fairly obvious actually there could be a really great partnership to do with Tink, which um, feels like it's starting to play out. Very exciting. Yeah. Did um did you say that this came about without actually having met each other face to face because of Corona? Is that right? Yeah, I think there was one meeting that we had with Tink when we were very early days at looking at um, you know, potentially who we could use in Europe. But it might have been like one fail one sort of uh, partnerships meeting face to face in London, but then uh, any conversation around a potential strategic partnership um started. Um sort of early parts of uh, of March with COVID kind of kicking off. So yeah, it was an interesting uh, process to go through, learnt a lot around kind of how you manage that, build those uh, partnerships and relationships remotely, which is important because um, a big part of the transaction was really alignment of management teams and culture. Um, yeah, and it was just fast. It was only really when we got to completing the transaction and someone sort of said we should really uh get together to celebrate uh that we realized one that we couldn't and two that um if we had managed it would have been the first time we met so yeah it, it, i guess it's a good good case study i guess looking back on um, 
how you can get these things done when you need to remotely. Does it matter, you think? Because I think you've done M&A before, right? And I'm sure that was probably not in a similar kind of uh, crisis situation or at least uh, not being able to meet each other face-to-face. What's it like? Is it much different? Do you say, is it necessary to meet each other face-to-face to be successful? Um, it's not, I otherwise it, this wouldn't have yeah, happened. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. I think um, I think we've proved you, do, you don't have to. I, I sort of personally still think it's very important because I think you, at the start of a, at a, start of a conversation with people to try and understand whether you're aligned like i said in terms of almost culture mindset um what you want to achieve out of a partnership um i think it's important face to face i feel like within my own team we've kind of um lent on a lot of kind of like i'd call it relationship equity that we've gained from spending time face to face um formally informally etc to kind of help you build those relationships to be strong such that you can get through the difficulties of remote. I, I think it's important. I think we, both sides might say, you know, none of these trans, no transaction is straightforward without bumps in the road or without challenges to overcome. I think overcoming those challenges was a little bit harder because you, um, uh, what, what I'd normally do, my first thing to do would be go and pop and have a coffee with someone like to sort of, how you know have that conversation say how are you really feeling about things or how do we take this forward that's not been possible remote so i think it probably and from other people i've spoken to i think it probably extends the time frame to be able to do these types of partnerships um just because you're you're missing a tool in your armory to be able to kind of sometimes cut through into what really matters so yeah i think people are adapting brilliantly um but i think there's something in our DNA and human nature that um, sometimes we like to have those tougher conversations face to face. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's exciting that these things um, are still happening despite the situation. We don't know how long we've, we're going to be in here. So it's good that at least these things are still, uh, are still going on. And um, I mean, another exciting news, I think it was late last week that you guys announced to, to also become a partner of the Visa FinTech Connect program. What does that mean? And how did that came about? Yeah, that, that's something we've been working on for quite a long time um, as well, uh, pre and post COVID, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's great. It's a great initiative Visa have. Ultimately, really what Visa are doing with their, their kind of fintech program is, um, you know, they're, they're very aware that they're not uh, as agile as kind of, they probably would call themselves fintech, a fintech company. Mm-hmm. But I think that might be a bit generous. They're a very large, as everyone knows, kind of big corporate machine. So it can be quite difficult for them to innovate um, really fast. It also really with this program, it enables them to showcase and introduce their clients, um, big banks, uh, anyone using them for uh, kind of their core payment services to um, great fintechs that can help solve other problems for them. So I think for Visa, it gives them a, a kind of a lot of additional armory in their partnership conversations. Um you know, without having to have gone away and acquired uh, all of those companies and tried to in, in sort of integrate them within Visa or um, or have to uh, to kind of go about building um, services that fintechs like ourselves are better better uh, positioned to to develop and execute on. So effectively for them, it gives them the showcase of fintechs. And for us, it gives us the potential to access uh, and and be part of partnerships visa forms with clients that we might otherwise not have 
uh, access to and as anyone that's uh, started uh, a business to business organization, especially in fintech, um, you know, to get those larger partnerships with big organizations like banks, um, you know, it helps if you can do that deal on, we always say on, on paper that exists. So if we can do that deal on visa paper and add an amazing uh, piece of technology to help a bank with assessing affordability of consumers without them having to start from scratch, figuring out, you know, who open works are, um, the better that shortens our sales cycle, um, opens doors that wouldn't otherwise be open. So I think it's a really good win-win and um, yeah, you know, outside of us as well, FinTech have assembled a great sort of panel or selection of uh, FinTechs there that if you're looking at that as a client to Visa, you've got everything to solve probably your pressing problems, you know, digital ID, KYC, AML, um, us with affordability assessment, some others with um, uh, services to help with financial management for consumers, things like that. So yeah, it's a great initiative and we're really glad to be part of it. Yeah, great. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're just two steps ahead of some of your competitors who might not have uh, a visa or any other scheme name next to theirs. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, um, I think as, as I mentioned, kind of really kind of with, you know, fintech B2B, it, it's often uh, you can, obviously you need to have a great product, but you also need to have great distribution channels. And often a part of that is distribution partners. Um, and so if, um, you know, if, if, if Visa have, uh, which they have taken some time assembling the fintechs they they want to partner with and are proud to partner with, that says a lot for us that, that helps us open some doors and, um, like I say, accelerate getting our products into the, to, uh, the hands of, um, uh, Visa's clients and, um, just expanding the business. Of course. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing in order to receive every episode as it's published. The fintech space is ever-changing, and we care about keeping you up-to-date with the latest happenings in this exciting space. If you wish to appear on the next episode of In Check with Fintech, please email podcast at teampcn.com. That's podcast at teampcn.com. Back to back to open banking um, and back to our topic. I mean, how do you see um, open banking can be applied in different ways, um, but specifically, how can it be applied to improve kind of people's everyday lives? Yeah, I um, hopefully I kind of um, started to allude to some of these, but I'll bring some more uh, examples to life of how open works. We've been working with clients to use use open banking just to make things work better for people. Um, so I, there's probably some really good good examples I could just talk about. We've um, we've done a lot of work um, with Zero. Uh, um, they use open banking to help small businesses you know, have that visibility of their bank account and real time payments alongside um, their sales ledger and management accounts. I mean that sounds very simple, but it's really powerful. It helps a small business owner, especially in these sort of times like these, know. That they got paid when they expect to get paid by um by people buying from them that they've paid their suppliers just bringing that real-time information in front of them uh, is massively powerful uh we've done a lot of work with a company in the uk called snoop who we love uh, which is a personal finance management app but um slight slight twist on it in terms of really focusing on giving people really personalized financial tips to make their money go further um that's probably the most sort of when people talk about open banking and how 
a consumer might benefit. A lot of people talk about personal finance management. And I think there's still a lot more that can be done in that area. Um, so we're really excited about what can kind of happen, uh, how you can use this information just to build people's confidence with their money. Um, you know, if you can make someone more confident about, you know, feel on top of their money, especially with the current climate, that's really, really powerful and does, you know, help people improve uh, not just their financial well-being, but their their mental health and, um, like I say, confidence. Um, we've also been doing a lot of work with um, specific to COVID, kind of with payment holidays. So um, we've got a lot of clients who are using our our um, our service that enables a consumer to digitally demonstrate their affordability and their financial circumstances to effectively um, check people's not check their eligibility for payment holidays, but check that's going to deliver the right outcome. So it would be very easy for uh, credit providers to say, sure, um, the regulator said we should extend payment holidays to people struggling to pay. Let's just offer that to all of our customers. Whereas in reality, it's absolutely the right, right treatment for certain consumers who have had a, a loss of income or a shock to their income and might struggle to be staying on top of bills. But for other people, it, it's not the right answer because actually they should continue to service their debt um, and not incur kind of unnecessary interests and charges. So um, we've been doing some really exciting work in that area um, that really does help people with just a really quick sense check on, should, should I go into a payment holiday? Is it actually going to help me or not? Um, and then probably the, the example I touched on very briefly earlier, which is a product we've built ourselves called Tully, which is for a very specific part of the population, but a part that's growing, which is those that are very, very financially squeezed, people who can't afford to stay on top of their uh, bills or their debt repayments. And with open banking, we're able to deliver someone from them being in a situation where they're not sure what to do about their finances. And they've got all these kind of letters or emails and phone calls coming in saying, you've fallen behind on your payments. We could take them through a really simple digital journey to understand exactly where everything is. We can help them understand which debts they need to prioritize. And if they can't afford to pay them, we can help reschedule those debts in a way that's affordable for them to pay. And then if that weren't enough, <laughs> we can help them with making those payments really frictionless for them all in one journey. So that's my, I would say that because we've created it, but probably my favorite kind of end-to-end -end, um, solution that kind of uses, you know, almost everything that open banking can offer a consumer in a really sort of um, high priority use case. Do you, do you see that they're mainly being used by people who are maybe financially less healthy? Is it also for the very wealthy or is it a mix? Or can you even see those those insights? Yeah, what we're, we're certainly starting to, we've built, we built Tully for people that where the, I would describe it as kind of um, they've gone over the point of no return when it comes to debt. They, they're in a position where they can't afford to meet their repayments. And so that's, that's why we built it to help those people um, largely because actually there's not great digital services at all for that population. Typically you get pretty good digital services. If you're looking, if you've got some free cash to invest or to save or, yeah, or you're a sort of millennial that's um, 
got fairly good disposable income and you just want to track where your spending is. So we really focused on that financially squeezed segment, but the, the, the um, technology, but also just the, the um, philosophy behind it does apply to a much larger population. So effectively what we're doing is helping people understand where their income goes in the month, um, whether they've got enough left at the end of each month uh, after they've paid their bills to um, firstly service any debts that they have, but also what they've got left then to ultimately run and enjoy their lives. Um, that applies obviously across the spectrum. So we're starting to um, uh, sort of enter partnerships now and have clients where we're expanding the use of that technology, um, you know, using it upfront in lending, um, using it when people have borrowed to, to look at credit line adjustments, increases or decreases based on that financial position. I think the thing that's really exciting uh, for me about sort of what can happen next is actually helping a consumer be much more informed before they borrow. So Tully's all about things have gone wrong. How do we help you get back on track? But actually sort of preventing that problem in the first place by, you know, making a lending transaction, if you like, as much about the consumer understanding whether they can afford it and whether it's the right thing to do as, uh, as it is for the person lending the money. And so I talk a lot about creating a, this, this perfect relationship where you have a, a confident borrower and a responsible lender. I think open banking kind of the next stage gives you that opportunity where you can actually get to a position where people are borrowing money very much with their eyes open um, and knowing whether that's the right thing for them to do. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, it expands kind of across population. It might not be necessarily day one for people with high net worth, um, you know, looking to manage their investment portfolio, but maybe we'll talk a bit about open finance and what that could lead to. Definitely. Yeah. So better informs borrowing basically is what you see as next then. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we focus a lot in and around credit. That's my background and um, what we focus on as a business. So I probably talk about that most. Um, so that sort of the point of borrowing money in the first place through repaying that money. And as I discussed, kind of, if it goes wrong, sort of recovery and getting back on track. Um, but I think there's an amazing amount that can be done to improve the credit market through using open banking. And, and like I say, I think we need to be really ambitious about that. I don't think it's enough to say um, as an industry that what we're going to try and do is drive efficiency into the process of um, by using open banking to help make credit decisions faster or even stop by saying uh, we're going to um, use open banking to to enable us to drive financial inclusion by you know lending to people who without open banking we wouldn't have enough data about that consumer to know whether to lend to them or not i don't think it's enough to get that far i think we have to go as far as actually this is the opportunity to somewhat educate consumers at the point of borrowing um just because i think a, having spent so many years and so much time looking at and talking to consumers after it's gone wrong um which often it is not the lender's fault or the consumer's fault it's because life got in the way and they lost their job or um they were on long-term sick or, or they had a relationship breakdown um there's just an opportunity to use this information just yet and make a much more informed um sort of borrowing decision and therefore a much more aligned lender borrower relationship which i think is what I, i'm getting a bit grandiose now but i think what we need as part of coming out of recovery 
um, you know, we need everyone to be a little bit more aligned on levels of borrowing and debt to make sure we don't prolong um, recovery any more than necessary. Has, has the, as the current situation or is the current situation increasing the relevance of this? Is that causing more need for indeed having that conversation or at least looking at the opportunities in order to make those informed borrowing decisions, both for consumers, but I guess also for banks, fintechs, uh, other financial services companies who are indeed lending that money? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen it in, uh, we've got a few measures. I guess one measure is people are buying from us a bit more, which is have great, yeah. uh, as in wanting to get that better understanding of consumers before they lend. Uh, yeah, I think there's a few drivers kind of within COVID. I mean, the biggest, the biggest one, actually, when you get down into the detail is people's incomes have just become a lot more unpredictable. So uh, that pre-COVID, you would assess whether to lend to someone largely based on what they say they earn and then their previous repayment performance, you know, and if they paid stuff back before, then they'll pay back again. I think, um, and that, by the way, is very unfair. That's very high level, but a high level perspective, that's what was done. Um, as soon as you get to a situation where you've got um, the, the potential for mass unemployment, the I think it's been extra um, kind of amplified by in the UK and across Europe kind of job protection schemes. So in the UK furlough with the government providing support to pay people's wages, that actually masks a lot and makes it very difficult to rely on one, someone's credit score to, to actually predict their likelihood to repay because the credit scores are basically shot because um, as far as the credit bureau is concerned, you've um, probably got a combination of things. It looks like you're being paid, but you're actually being paid by the government. And it looks like you're um, not repaying uh, or, or the way they've marked the credit files for payment holidays. It looks like you're paying for your mortgage, but you're not. So you put those two together and the credit scores kind of probably worth not uh, considering too much and finding other data so that other data can absolutely be is this person earning a salary what is it how stable is it and um, what's their spending pattern looking like and have they got enough uh, money to to have the headroom to repay any borrowing they might take on so i think it's been really significant i can't see it reversing itself um just because for a long time kind of income's not going to be that stable or predictable for, for households. Um, plus, you've got another factor that was happening anyway pre-COVID, which was the regulator in the UK, the FCA, saying um, to lenders and providing guidance to say, you really need to understand a lot more about um, your consumer's circumstances right now. So rather than just looking at previous payment performance, you really need to be looking at, but can they afford to take on this extra debt that you're going to lend to them? And will they meet the payments and will it will it push them over the edge with other debts they have or will it force them to make difficult decisions on whether to pay, you know, for essential uh, living um, costs or services above repayment of debt. So that was a long winded way of saying I think it's really important and we're certainly seeing there's a regulatory driver there's a but for the first time really COVID has driven it to be a kind of lenders pulling as well because without this extra information, they can't lend. Indeed. So looking at looking at the future then, basically what you predict is the data becoming more and more accurate because of a push from the regulator, because of a push from the lenders itself in order to indeed make better 
lending decisions and for the consumer to make better borrowing decisions. Um, what else do you think is, is, is next for open banking data, or sorry, open banking, uh, open data, uh, open finance? I mean, we talked about the M&A with Tink. Um, we've talked about customer um, adoption. We talked about uh, yeah, data relevance increasing or accuracy increasing. Um, anything else you think is next? Yeah, I think, I, I think the really great news is that, um, that if there's anything, <laughs> if there is anything positive to come out of COVID, it's actually kind of driven some open banking adoption. There's a kind of open banking or open data centric view. But I think there's, we're going to move, in my prediction would be in the next 18 months, we're going to get towards really mass adoption of open banking where genuinely most people are going to be saying, oh, yes, I've benefited from it or I use it in some way. I think that's for kind of three three reasons. I think we've touched on some of these, but the first is the regulator demanding this this focus on making sure that lenders are conducting more detailed reviews of affordability. So I think that's going to be driven by the regulator. The most efficient and effective way to do it is to use the data available from open banking. So I think that will drive adoption. I think one of the really interesting things we'll see alongside this, and we've not talked much about payments and sort of what open banking and open data enables within payments but i think we'll continue to see the rise of digital payments so obviously covid's kind of driven some of that because you know using cash is actually dangerous <laughs> like actually to your health so all of a sudden digital payments is like well, if it wasn't growing enough it's growing even faster so i think in the uk specifically there's a consultation at the moment on two additional features through the the payment element of uh, PSD2, which is recurring payments. So today, the payment initiation service and the payment part of open banking only enables sort of one-time payments, but moving that to recurring payments and moving to uh, a feature called sweeping that effectively enabling you to, uh, with the consumer's consent, kind of within parameters, sweep money from one account to another. Um, both of those I see as kind of drive, both contributing to drive adoption, but also un unlock some really exciting use cases so you know here it's sort of i ought i can automatically set something up that takes you know a percentage of what i have left after i've paid for my key expenses and puts into a the most optimal way to get me a return on that those savings or move money back if i need it if i have an unexpected expense so just really helping me smooth my money out um and then i think really the other big driver that will drive adoption is consumers actually want to keep a closer eye on their money. I think this is one of the other things in COVID we're seeing it through adoption rates and uptake of our services. But I think people are focusing a bit more on their money. Um, they know sort of it's not going to be easy to, to, to recover and people have been a bit more um, prudent about managing their household finances. So that will drive adoption. Yeah. And then I think that's what you need is consumer adoption. I think that then drives you to more Open finance, I think that's a couple of years away, but ultimately bringing more account types into the mix so that you can, you know, sweep that money that's left over, not just at the end of the month, not just into a savings account, but into an investment account that's tax efficient um, and seeing what return you're getting alongside um, what you're sweeping in. I think that's really exciting. Um, and then building on that open data, which again is probably a couple of years away, but will bring into the fold kind of that insight for consumers on usage of services. So energy, telco services, you can suddenly see where, because I think really 
true value for the consumer comes from clever ways to combine this information together. So, you know, being able to automatically for me uh, at the same time as sweeping this money I have left over into the most tax efficient savings vehicle, um, also kind of telling me not just that I could, at the moment, the services today in the market, let me know I could save some money on my energy bill or my um, mobile phone bill, but they're doing that sort of just based on what I spend today. They're not basing it on usage. So if they could base my, how much I could save on energy by knowing how much I use and they could base um, how much I could save on my telco based on whether I can get coverage where I live and what extra services they offer from, you know, Apple TV, Netflix, whatever subscription TV service I like, that's where you get to sort of really um, kind of exciting uh, extra pounds in my pocket, um, time saving for the consumer. And that goes beyond financial data, right? That goes to the extent of exactly knowing who you are, what you do. I mean, more and more apps, phones, indeed, um, what's it called? Google Nests and stuff. They can share your usage. They can share your location. Um, if you kind of, what you're saying is if you put that all together, there's just so much more you can do than we do right now. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it comes with its own considerations in terms of unintended consequences because... Yeah, we're not uh, that far away to, from a regulatory, from a tech perspective, what's possible to, um, it's a bit scary, but kind of let the, let the algorithm manage your finances for you. Yeah, um, the money work for you. Yeah, exactly. Now, will everyone opt into to that? And I think the really important piece as a, an industry we need to maintain, which we've done a good job of so far, is getting the regulation being both an enabler of making that possible, but also the right regulation and best practice around how you manage that and mitigate any unintended consequences. So all of those benefits of finance on autopilot, but with the ability to take back the, um, the steering, if you like, whenever you need to, but also know what, know what's happening, get greater visibility. Um, so there's some work to do to get that balance, right. Um, but the potential's um, kind of huge. And, and what I'm, most passionate about is how do you unlock that potential for people who lack that confidence around money or lack that ex access to the services that some of the other of us are fortunate enough to get. So the really exciting opportunity, I think, is to, yeah, is to, to use a, it might be a slightly pared back version of that vision, but to kind of help people who, you know, the amount of people I see who forego on things like life insurance or home contents insurance, because it's, ultimately something they don't feel they can afford, but partly because they probably don't understand the, the impact of on them financially of not having those services that some of us or most of us probably listening today kind of take for granted that we understand how those things work. I mean, open data, open finance and using it in a transparent way really can bring down a lot of barriers just to make financial services just easier for people to navigate. Because um, I do think it's too hard for people today, you know, it's, the odds are kind of stacked against almost, it sounds terrible, but almost the average person with average earnings and average level of financial literacy. Yeah, it's a pretty difficult world to, to navigate. Yeah. On the, on the road to that kind of making financial services easy to, to navigate, what's next specifically for you guys? What, after now, uh, partnership with Tink, um, after being entered into that uh, visa program, what's next? Yeah, for, uh, for us, it's kind of um, keep the focus on really what we do at OpenWorks is 
um, we build solutions that help end consumers understand what they can afford. So what they can afford to invest or save or borrow or, you know, repay as we've talked about. Um, so really focusing on that, we think that's a massive area of importance for consumers and for the clients that we ultimately sell our products to. Um, so banks and other fintechs. So yeah, really next for us is just it's doubling down in that area, building out more products, finding more use cases where this understanding of someone and their household's affordability is is so critical to to the decision they make, like I say, whether to borrow, whether to repay. So um, that's really what we focused on. I think the, the really exciting thing about the Tink partnership is it unlocks new markets for us to take that expertise into. So Europe um, next year will be the plan. And then um, beyond that, um, after that. So that's what's really exciting about that. Plus it just gives us this extra focus on um, this value above the rails, as I would call it. So yeah, that's that's what's next. Really cool, great. Uh, cool, Ollie. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. If people want to find out more about you, or if you want to find out more about OpenWorks, follow your story. Where where should they go? Yeah, best place to find me is go to um, LinkedIn. I'm Ollie Betts on LinkedIn. That's Ollie with a Y. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Betts Ollie. Uh, so send me a message. And for the business for OpenWorks, you can find us at OpenWorks.com. Great. All right. Thanks again for uh, for being on the show. It's been uh, a pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been uh, fun to share a bit about the story and what I think is going to happen next. So we'll see if any of it's true. <laughs> I think we need to do another one next year and then we can evaluate yeah, this one again. Great, Ollie. Thanks very much again. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, if you want to find out more about uh, OpenWorks, go to openworks.com or want to contact uh, Ollie, go to uh, his LinkedIn, Ollie Betts, or his Twitter, which is Betts Ollie. Um, and um, hear you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from a partner, Free a Girl, who are dedicated to fighting child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom, and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.